Hey everyone, happy Wednesday. This is Arnold with Warm Welcome. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, this is a show where we welcome Asian American restaurateurs, chefs, founders, and tastemakers. And you know, we share conversations about entrepreneurship, identity, and food culture. And so today we have a pretty special guest, uh, a good friend of mine, but also someone I actually had the pleasure of working with. I think so far on the podcast, the one person I've worked with and worked for is Elia. And so Eric's really the first person I've worked alongside with. And I met him at Levin Madison Park, where he was most recently the sous chef there. He has since left to open his new restaurant, Anzu. And I'm really excited to share his journey. Before EMP, he also worked at Chef Daniel Blood's Cafe Blood on the Upper East Side. Also uh, after that with Michael Anthony, uh, Chef Michael Anthony at Gramercy Tavern. So really, really amazing kitchens in New York City. Um, and I think that Eric especially is very articulate and passionate about cultural appropriation and Chinese American cuisine and identity and the perception of Chinese cuisine over the years and how he wants to change that. So I think that he he's an amazing individual, obviously a very talented chef, but more so than that, I think he he's really trying to take the conversation and narrative of Chinese American cuisine to another level um, in, in the rightful level, you know, for so long it has been, it has been um, perceived a very certain way, right? Uh, and we'll, we'll definitely get into that in our conversation. So again, this is Eric. I'm really happy to have him on the podcast. And uh, I think this is the first time we actually got a chance to speak outside of the kitchen since when we were at the restaurant, we were probably, um, not screaming at each other, but definitely didn't have the leisure in that in, in, in an environment like Eleven Madison to to chat. This is you know too much. So uh, I actually learned a lot about Eric too through this interview. So um, hope you enjoyed our conversation today, and I'll circle back with you towards uh, the end. Even before we get to like EMP and the Nomad, there's a few restaurants you used to work at too, but. Uh, the, 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 the point I want to begin, because we kind of spoke about this off air, is uh, your family owns a restaurant in Queens. So talk to me about growing up, you know, in, in, in that restaurant setting. Because I mean, I can relate to that as well. You know, how was it? Did you did you help out? And, and is that where you kind of grew a love for cooking? Or can, give me a little background story there. So my family has been in the restaurant game since like the early 80s. So like a really long time. Uh, you know, back when Chinese food was new and in its heyday. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my mom and my dad, they kind of by accidentally inherited a restaurant, uh, in Queens from the owner. They just like got like the owner and her husband got in like a huge fight, didn't want to run the restaurant anymore. And they're like, do you want to buy the restaurant? And then they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, so it just kind of like went from there. Like it's not what they went to school for. It's just kind of how they put themselves through school. And then they became full-time restaurant people. Uh, so yeah, they've owned like a variety of restaurants throughout, um, you know, their career. Um, so we had a restaurant in Long Island as well. And then, you know, we started out in Queens, but I eventually moved to Long Island. Uh, but then unfortunately my father passed away in 1998. And, um, you know, it was really difficult for my mother to maintain like multiple restaurants. So we kind of, downsized to one restaurant, which is still there since 1998. It's in uh, Manhattan, Long Island, and it's called Pearl East. And uh, yeah, I mean, I spent a ton of my childhood there, you know, I mean, a uh, single parent, there's not a ton of supervision. So I was at the restaurant a lot. I, I didn't get to cook because uh, I was a musician. 
And, um, you know, the idea of like hurting my hands was very uh, unacceptable. So I didn't actually, yeah, I actually didn't cook at all. I just like kind of worked the front. I took like takeout orders, you know, bus tables, like, you know, just kind of all the dining room kind of stuff. So I always like felt really comfortable doing that. And like, you can really go down pretty hard taking takeout orders at a restaurant like that. Like it's really busy and you're just like juggling two phones and it's like really crazy. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I spent a ton of my, spent a ton of my life there. And then eventually when I started cooking, I came back and I worked there for a year and then I started cooking in New York city and, uh, yeah, now I'm back there again, (laughs) kind of keeping things together. Yeah, I know. So, uh, so yeah, we've been there for a while. My mom's been in the game for it. The the one thing I know is though is that you had a music background, right? I mean, I see the cello in the background too, but that was like your first love, right? Yeah. So you know, like most good Asian American kids, I was forced uh, to play a string instrument. Uh, so my mom's actually a classical musician. She was a classically trained pianist. So she, yeah. So she actually loves music, and you know, just kind of got you know into the restaurant business as a term of practicality, but. Uh, yeah, you know, my sister played violin from a really young age and then I started playing cello when I was a little older, like 10 years old. Again, like, I don't, I don't know if I would call it love. I was forced on it a lot and I, I didn't, I didn't like playing at all. Like I just, you know, just kind of, nah, I didn't like it. It was, I hated practicing. I hated going to school for it. But, uh, you know, regardless, I somehow ended up at, you know, the pre-college division at Juilliard school. And, uh, yeah, it was my whole life for, you know, basically the age of 10 to 18. That's all I did. It's, it was just entire focus. And, you know, it actually got really lucky because I didn't do well in school otherwise. So I got into a really good college as a result of playing the cello and I got pretty lucky there. So, uh, but yeah, the minute I got away from home and, uh, you know, wasn't being pushed by my mom every day to play, I, I quit. <laughs> and then, and so like, I didn't, I didn't touch the instrument for like, like 14, 15 years until when I came back to EMP and then Rashad was like, Oh, we should play for the staff. And then I was like, dude, I don't know, man. Like I haven't played cello in like 14 years. He's like, no, let's do it. And then, you know, that's when I started playing again. And then I, I don't know if you were there that day actually, but when- I, I had already left at that point, but I saw on Instagram and, um, that's, that's when I discovered, I was like, Oh, look at this. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, you, you played the cello, but, and, and then I, I saw your, uh, deck that you were sending out and I was reading through it, obviously. And it said that you went to Juilliard, and I was like, "What is what is this guy doing at what is this guy doing at <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. It's just like looking back on it, like I I really could have used like some social media back when I was a young cellist because like when you go to the Juilliard school, you're like in this like really like egocentric place where you think like you're really amazing. <laughs> you're like, you know, yeah, exactly. And nowadays, you can like go on Instagram, and you can find like amazing musicians, amazing cellists everywhere, all over the world, like. The first like deep dive on Instagram I did on cello, I was just like so depressed. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> there's so many talented people out there. I was such an arrogant little kid. It's like horrible. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I- I've come to really love playing again. You know, I'm really thankful to Rashad for kind of pushing me to start playing again. And, uh, you know, especially now that I've left the love of Madison Park, I have a little more time to myself. It's been really nice to practice and kind of get to know the instrument again. So, Yeah. Love is a strong word, but we're, we're somehow back full circle to that also. So how did, how'd you go, how'd you go from there from like, cause you worked at Cafe Boulud, you worked at a uh, Gramsci Tavern, right? Was Cafe Boulud your, your first stop, like professional kitchen wise or? No. So actually when I was in school at uh, an undergrad, I went to Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Chicago area. 
So yeah, I had this like weird lightning bolt inspiration moment where I was like, I'm going to be a chef. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was a lot of things. I mean, the Food Network was like so huge back then. Yeah. And like, you know, it was just like on TV all the time. Like all my roommates were watching it all the time. And uh, I don't know. That was like when like becoming a chef was like starting to become like a really sexy thing, right? Like Bourdain was starting to gain a lot of traction, you know? So like, you know, I started reading Kitchen Confidential and these kind of things. And like, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I was like already approaching my senior year of college. So I was like, shit, I don't know, man. And then, yeah, one day, just like lightning bolt inspiration, like I'm going to be a chef. So I was knocking on doors in Evanston, which is like a pretty small college town. And, um, you know, just asking like, hey, will you take me on? Like, you know, you don't have to pay me, but I just want to like learn a little bit. And so that was actually my first like actual cooking experience, like put on Chef White's, holding a knife, like actually cooking food for paying customers. That was a very interesting experience. <laughs> uh, I mean, looking back on it, those restaurants weren't great, but I mean, I learned a lot and I, I still, to this day, I, when, you know, younger cooks, they ask me for advice. I'm like, you should just start cooking somewhere like really low stakes, just like some local restaurant, just learn, you know, just make mistakes, work at a place where you're not going to get your head cut off every time, you know, you like do something wrong. Like, you know, um, so I, it was really valuable experience and I learned a ton. And then, uh, yeah, I came back to New York. I was working at my family restaurant and then I went to culinary school and then I started working at Cafe Balloon. And then that's a, that was like a real rough crash course, uh, on cooking. But yeah, so that was, I had given up the cello already. Yeah. I mean, that was like, that was like first, first professional, like, uh, restaurant in New York. Right. And that's like your first step forward into like fine dining sort of. It was definitely my first New York City and first Michelin starred restaurant. I mean, I was intimidated beyond all hell. But, um, you know, I, at the time I was like a little disappointed in myself because I, you know, wasn't at Per Se or the Bernardin or 11 Madison Park, you know, I mean, these three Michelin star restaurants, you know, but then looking back on it, it was like the best experience ever. It's kind of like the same thing, right? Like at a, a cafe, it was like real cooking. You like actually every day were responsible for a lot and you got to learn like really practical cooking techniques, really simple things. And, you know, it was just like paid attention to and executed at a high standard. And so I learned a lot. I got my ass handed to me. Like it was really humbling. Um, I thought I like, you know, uh, was a pretty decent cook by that point and had learned some stuff like line cooking and, you know, culinary school had inflated my head. I thought I was like so much better because <laughs> everyone there is just like, you know, they're so young and they just don't know. And, uh, so yeah, I went to cafe and I just like totally got leveled. It was really hard. I mean, I would just like walk up to the door every day. It was in the hotel. It was in a hotel in the Upper East Side. And like, I was just like in this basement staring at the service entrance, like, dude, don't do it. Don't go in. Don't go in. <laughs> like, like, like sweating bullets. I was just like freaking out like at 530 in the morning. But, uh, and like, it was really hard. I, I, looking back on it, I'm not totally sure how I survived it. I just like every day I went in and I was like, I'm just going to try my best just survive this day. But it was really hard, but super thankful for it. It made me really strong. It was the first time really in my life I'd like, gotten yelled at and like had gotten chefs in my face, like, you know, holding me to a really high standard and telling me that like, you know, what I was doing is unacceptable. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it toughened me up really bad. I wore mean, <laughs> really, really well, but also bad. Like it, it was, it almost broke me in some ways, but uh, no, it was a great experience. And then, yeah, after that I went to Gramercy Tavern. So 
that was also really good too. And all of it. You work for basically like all the all the namesake, like the most. You know what I mean, Daniel Belude. Um, but Gavin was there too. And Gavin's, I mean, he, he I mean, unfortunately, I, I heard he closed his restaurant in like Minneapolis. But oh, he's I the mean, man. He's, I've heard, I've heard only great things about him. Um, you work for Michael Anthony at GT and he's also, I mean, only great things I've heard about him too. So you got, you had some good like leaders in the kitchen. Yeah, I got really, you know, I, looking back on it, it was all like, you know, unintentional, right? Like I was just falling into these jobs kind of not like, you know, I, they just kind of like, happened organically like cafe just kind of got lucky just kind of got a job there gramercy just like happened to like stars there because a friend worked there and i ended up liking it a lot uh so but looking back on it i'm like very thankful for the trajectory right because i like learned a ton in every single step and did have some like really incredible mentors like gavin was awesome like really great guy um really tough obviously like he held everyone to a super high standard but really inspiring also i loved working for him you know I was uh, at first just like an extern, and but he just invested a ton in me, and he, um, you know, put a lot of time and a lot of work into me, and just really was like invested in me succeeding. So I really appreciated that. And then, uh, yeah, Grammys Tavern was awesome too. I mean, it's a huge restaurant, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, big team, lots of <laughs> serving, lots of dinners every day. Uh, so it was, it's like a hell of an operation. It's like really big. Um, but it was awesome. Like the people who worked there were fantastic. Uh, I learned so much about just like basic cooking skills, right? Like it's such a good school, so to speak. You're just doing really fundamental things like pickles, purees, just like roasted fish, like, you know, uh, brown butter based meats. Like just like really simple, really delicious cooking, ingredient forward. And uh, it was really awesome. I mean, I, I learned a ton. I was there for like almost three years and I have nothing but like really fond memories of it. I mean, obviously at the time there was like hard times, but, uh, overall looking back on it, like I learned a ton and it's like inspired me a lot in what I want to do now because you know, that like wood fire cooking in the tavern where you're, you know, that was my, that was like hands down my favorite cooking experience in New York city. You're just literally building a fire. You're keeping it alive with logs and you're just like putting vegetables and meat on it. And you're, it, it was, it was just so, um, you know, visceral in the way you were cooking. It was so organic and so natural and simple. And, you know, you're in this beautiful New York city dining room. That, that was the best. Like, and that's why, you know, a lot of inspiration for what I want to do now is like, got to cook on a wood fire in the, in the dining room, right? Like just serving guests, being a part of the magic right there. So yeah, I mean, it was great. And, you know, I met my, met my girlfriend there <laughs> still together now. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, I still have like a lot of really good friends from there. I, I really loved it. And uh, in terms of just basic cooking fundamentals, I would recommend it to anyone. It's just a good learning environment in that regard. So the the other thing I noticed though is like when I look at the people around me, especially those kind of uh, in, you know in the kitchen, um, a lot of them worked at GT. But also, I think there's a lot of Asians in GT, right? Like especially GT in the kitchen. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Hasong. Yeah, like he was there. I mean, there were a ton. I mean, we definitely. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you about this someday, but I don't, I don't know like what happened, but the huge Korean influx in, in fine dining and cooking, <laughs> like, you know, when I was at uh, culinary school in, at CIA, like, it's like there's classes that are like 60, 70% Korean. And I was just like, it's like, how did cooking become so popular in Korea? And so anyway, the point being, there's always like a huge amount of like Korean chefs in the city looking for jobs and they're all, you know, populating these really high end restaurants, Gramercy being one of them. And so there were a ton of Korean kids who were there to learn. And 
yeah, a lot of Asian American. It was a pretty like diverse kitchen. A lot of women too. It's like looking back on it, those as opposed to some kitchens where they're often criticized for being dominated by white men. That kitchen was quite diverse, and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and the sous chef team as well. I mean. There was definitely this feeling of diversity and like, you know, anyone can succeed there, especially when I first started there. Um, like half the sous chef team were, was female, like uh, Suzanne Cups, who's now the chef at 232 Bleecker. Like she was, she was amazing. Like, you know, there was just always a, a good sense of anyone can succeed here. And uh, it was a really good team environment in that regard. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of Asian kids, <laughs> for sure. So I think I can relate it to what you just said, maybe, uh, you know, earlier you said how, like at the time food network was blowing up in Korea, we also had a similar food channel and I want to say it's called olive TV and it was a similar thing, like regular pro like really uh, original programming, but a lot of like cooking shows also like dramas. There was like a K drama, Korean drama about, about cooking and like the whole like chef, uh, being a chef was romanticized a lot in Korea. And I think, um, we, you know, as you know, too, in Asia, it's, it's a whole nother story, but the perception of, of, of a chef kind of changed a lot during that time. So I think that's one of the reasons too, that, that plays a part in like the influx of Koreans in, in these kitchens. But, um, do you think, and I saw this at EMP, but like in GT or Bulu, do you think like any, uh, Asian inspired, like because of a diverse kitchen, did any like Asian ingredients or, or things like that kind of like sneak its way into the menu? Uh, definitely at those two restaurants for sure. I mean, at Cafe Blue, they had a, this whole section of the menu is called, uh, Le Voyage. And like the whole point was, you know, Daniel Blue exploring and Gavin exploring like various cuisines around the world. And, uh, it wasn't meant to be in like an appropriated kind of way. It was just kind of like to meant to be in like an interesting sort of way and just kind of exploring different techniques and flavors because Cafe Blue is like, you know, they, uh, oh, their dining base is like a ton of regulars, people who like go to that restaurant a lot and they always want something different and, you know, trying new stuff. So that was like a huge hallmark of, you know, uh, Chef Boulid. Like he was always trying out different things. Uh, so yeah, there was like a lot of Asian influence there. And then at Gramercy Tavern, I mean, um, Chef Mike, uh, you know, he lived in Japan for a while and he studied a lot of Japanese cuisine. So he implemented that a ton at Gramercy. There was a ton of, ja especially Japanese cooking. Uh, I feel like we use dashi and like almost everything. And, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I never felt like it was in an inappropriate way. Uh, I always felt like it was, it was pretty responsible. I mean, you know, that's like a whole nother conversation about appropriation and, and, you know, what are the, uh, uh, what are the boundaries there? But yeah, there was, there was a lot of Asian cooking for sure. And um, you know, even, even on my side, like, you know, just creating specials every now and again, creating dishes, you know, it's hard not to like come up with flavors and techniques from your, from your upbringing, from your background. So it just kind of naturally manifests itself in the cooking. So, um, yeah, it's for real. I mean, a ton of new American cooking has a lot of Asian. Yeah. Well, since we brought it up anyways, Eric, appropriation <laughs> i mean what is what is what sticky is, topic yo i mean <laughs> talk talk to me how where you stand on this as a as a asian american you know uh who's worked at like the finest kitchens in new york you even made it up as a suit chef at you know emp like and I, I, we can oh man like emp is another story but like where, where, where do you stand on this i would like to say i'm like somewhere in the middle right because i don't think it's fair to go to chefs and say like oh you're you're not allowed to cook out of your lane like you got to stay in your lane you're a white guy you got to cook white food like or you're you know it's you know like or you're like you're a chinese guy you got to cook chinese food i mean 
obviously there's like different uh, power dynamics there and like which is the dominant culture and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think there's responsible ways to do it and irresponsible ways to do it. Like I was listening to uh, the Dave Chang, Eddie Huang podcast where they're talking about, uh, you know, Momofuku is making this chili crunch, you know, which is very inspired, if not like kind of a rip on Lao Gan Ma, which is like a very popular, uh, yeah, very popular Chinese hot sauce or, or chili sauce. And um, I was a little dissatisfied by some of the answers I was hearing. I mean, I, I do agree that you have to educate your guests or your customers and like what you're selling and you have to kind of like harken back to the inspiration and you know, where you're getting your techniques, where you're getting your ideas from, I think you should pay homage to where those things came from and just kind of own up to it. But I mean, people are allowed to create new things, right? And so I think as long as people are doing it in a responsible way, kind of owning up to it, then there's nothing really wrong with it if you choose to educate yourself, you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, there's like irresponsible ways to do it. Like I've, I've always been a little disappointed by the Hattie B's franchise. I don't know if you know that one. It's uh, like Nashville fried chicken, right? And like, I think that's like a really good example of appropriation done incorrectly, right? Like based on the hot style Nashville fried chicken from Prince's, which is a black owned business and it's long history in Nashville. And then, you know, there's kind of this, you know, culturally accepted white accessible version called Hattie B's. And, you know, they have the infrastructure to create big franchises, marketing, branding, and making it accessible to like a larger white public. Those are not resources that, you know, um, a lot of like older black families have that are educated on. They're not really given empowered to, um, you know, to build their business in such a way. I mean, it's literally disenfranchised. So, I think it's tough. It, it definitely depends on a lot of nuance, but I think chefs are becoming better about educating themselves and being upfront about where they're getting their inspiration. It's just kind of problematic at, you know, certain restaurants where it is a dashi and you're serving a dashi, but you won't call it a dashi in the dining room. That, is, that, is, that is where the line is drawn though, right? Like call it for what it is. Yeah, exactly. Like just start to it. It's fine. Like, you know, like, that's, I guess, where the hard line is, right? When you're taking something and kind of spinning it in such a way that it was your idea and, uh, you know, taking credit for it. I think that's where the big problem is. Um, so as long as people are giving some acknowledgement and making an effort to educate people, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we get a lot of uh, innovation from, right? You're taking from other cultures and learning from other people. And that's important to advancing gastronomy as a whole. But Again, yeah, we have to do it responsibly for sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it a ton. I think, you know, especially with Chinese cuisine, I think because Korean cuisine is so much more vogue now and there's so many Korean restaurants that are not crushing it in New York City. I think that's where a lot more like American chefs are getting their inspiration from because they're coming into contact with it. But even to Chinese Americans, Chinese food is still pretty obscure in a lot of ways. And like... People don't really know how things are made and the, the process is pretty like uh, opaque. It's hard to really um, appropriate something you don't totally understand. So, Well, with Chinese food, right? Like you're in such an interesting spot because your, your family, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the reason why your family got into the business is very different from why you're getting into it probably, right? Like your purpose and why you want to do this. Like what, what, why do you want to do it? You know, why do you want to, because you're trying to start a Chinese restaurant, you know? Like, what is your philosophy there? 
Chinese food has had a pretty bad rap in America. And like the history, <laughs> the history goes back pretty far. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of historians who actually can examine it in a proper way. But I mean, what is, what is the brand for like Chinese American food, right? It, it's bad on all sides. Like Asian people say it's not authentic. It's not real food. It's like, it's not real Chinese food. It's like, it's just like full of sugar. Everything is sweet and sour chicken and like, you know, takeout specials and yada, yada. And then on the other side, like the American side, it's like, there's like almost like this, this fear and this like disrespect of it. Right. Like it's has to come in a takeout container. It's like greasy. It's like full of MSG. Right. So like it just has a bad rap across the board. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like, you know, interestingly enough, my mother actually like really embraced the restaurant industry. She really loves what she does. And she's always tried to do something a little, um, you know, a little bit more exciting, a little bit more refined with it. But she was always met with a ton of resistance from her dining base. You know, they didn't, they had very firm expectations of the kind of money they wanted to pay for Chinese food. They had expectations that it should be cheap, which is totally unfair, right? Because actually like a lot of the uh, Chinese food you get in the restaurant, it's like there's a ton of protein. Um, the portions are like really big and it's, yeah, it's expensive. And so basically if you're just like unwilling to pay for it, you're just like kind of making this acknowledgement that you're not, not, you don't think they deserve the same kind of, um, you know, quality of life and pay as American chefs, right? Like, I think they um, talk about it really well and ugly delicious, right? It's like, why can you sell ravioli for like $27, but dumplings always have to be $6. It's like effectively the same thing, right? So I think to me, that felt like a great injustice because I love Chinese food. I, I, I loved Chinese American food, sesame chicken, all, like lo mein, all this shit that I grew up on. And uh, obviously, you know, I, I love more authentic things, the things I grew up eating at home and the Taiwanese cooking my grandmother did. So I didn't see really a ton of ambassadors for it in the culinary world, right? Because um, so much of the conversation was being dominated by Korean American chefs, which is, is great. You know, like there's, they were role models for me throughout my career, but there was just like, seemed to be this like odd lack of Chinese American chefs, like, you know, kind of promoting our own cuisine. And uh, even throughout my career, it's just like not a lot of Chinese American chefs. I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, I think maybe uh, Chinese parents have successfully steered them away from blue collar jobs or something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I felt like there needed to be an ambassador. It needed to be someone to kind of champion the cause of Chinese food to kind of start changing the conversation about, you know, MSG and this, like cheap takeout number one kitchen idea that is very ingrained in a lot of American minds. So that's the mission. We'll see if I can pull it off, but <laughs> it's kind of a tricky thing also. I mean, you're, you're in it for all the right reasons, man. But uh, I mean, I'm following you on Instagram and then um, you had a post about, I think what you just said, right? Like there's so much labor involved in Asian food, but especially Chinese cooking actually, that I mean, tell me about your experience because you are the you are you're, you have this crazy amount of training. You know, you've been in like the best kitchen in the world. But was it a humbling experience to you know work again, work next to these uh you know these these Chinese OGs who probably have like been folding dumplings for like 40, 50 years and they could do it with like their eyes closed? Oh, <laughs> uh, dude, it was it was so humbling. It was <laughs> it's all like I keep learning throughout my whole career. It's like at every step, just like keep your head down, man. Like you're just gonna encounter someone who's gonna make you feel really bad about yourself. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously coming off EMP, I, I felt 
you know, I, I haven't been there for like, you know, like four years almost. Uh, I felt pretty invincible in a lot of ways. And then, you know, I go back to my family kitchen and like exactly what you're talking about. It's like, you know, you're working with like a whole different kind of cuisine, a whole different set of techniques and uh, totally different structures to the way that the kitchen is organized. And uh, yeah, it's like going back to day one of cooking. And um, yeah, I mean, even just something as simple as dumplings, right? Like the way they do dumplings in most Chinese restaurants, they get like a huge bowl of like dumpling first. They put it on the table and like six or seven chefs are around it, just like rolling out wrappers and stuffing it. And like, you know, cause there's six dumplings to an order and you're selling like, you know, 60, 70 orders a night sometimes in dumplings. Uh, so you need to make hundreds and hundreds of dumplings every day. It's crazy. And yeah, and they are just, you know, they've been doing it for you know decades. So they literally can't do it with their eyes closed so fast, just these beautiful pleats. And even that was very humbling because you know, I would like to think that I was a pretty good chef. <laughs> and here I am just like very clumsily, like pinching these like dumpling wrappers together. And then, uh, yeah, when I, when COVID happened and started, I, I kind of took over as the quote unquote dim sum chef of the restaurant. Yeah. I mean, cause, uh, you know, the, my mom has this longstanding dim sum chef she's worked with for a really long time. He's very talented. Um, so, but you know, obviously cause of COVID, he didn't feel safe working and like he had young children at home. So yeah, I kind of took over and tried to, yeah, I tried to figure it out and it was really difficult because, you know, dim sum is just like the complete opposite of the kind of cooking I did at 11 Madison Park in a lot of ways, right? Like 11 Madison Park was just so much about speed organization and, you know, the precision is similar, but like the speed is, is very different. At EMP, you're just like running around with your head cut off sometimes, just like going as fast as possible. Uh, but dim sum is all about patience. You can only go as fast as like it wants you to go. So it's a lot more like pastry in that regard. And I'm really, I'm really bad at pastry because I'm like super impatient and I, I'm really bad at following instructions. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I just kind of like watched once, uh, Chinese chefs don't believe in recipes or recording any measurements whatsoever. So, you know, just like, oh yeah, just like this much. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Like one and a half, like small handfuls. Got it. Um, and there's a ton of like, I mean, the Chinese language in general, I mean, my Chinese, my Mandarin is not like excellent. So there's a lot of like deciphering going on of what they mean, you know, because there's like regular cornstarch and then there's like bougie cornstarch. And <laughs> I don't know what makes it better than regular cornstarch. And I don't totally know why it behaves a certain way, but they, um, anyway, so it was like, super difficult, intricate work, learning to like master these doughs and, uh, you know, was trying to figure out my own recipes of getting the uh, ratios right of, you know, water and flour and wheat starch and all this. So it was really a rough learning curve. And then, you know, add on to that the dexterity of shaping, you know what I mean? I mean, again, like there's always four to six, maybe even eight dumplings to an order of anything. So anything you make, it's hundreds and hundreds of these little motions. It's incredible, requiring like incredible dexterity. So that was rough. <laughs> it was tedious. It was like physically painful. I could feel it in my shoulders and my fingers every single day. Like when, you, when you're rolling out dumplings, you're just like rolling this dowel around in the table like thousands and thousands of times a day. Like I felt like my, my palm was just like completely like distort, like uh, destroyed by it. And uh, it, it, was, it was really interesting, but I, I felt really, I was actually pretty grateful for it because like, I, I do feel like this is like a really lost art, especially amongst my generation of chefs. 
And even though I was cursing these dumplings a lot of time, looking back on it now, I'm like pretty thankful I got that experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to the family restaurant, being surrounded by these chefs that, you know, they've been cooking in this way for decades and decades. It's uh, humbling to go back to being a neophyte again, you know, being a student. And I mean, you know, we're lifelong students, but in the sense of just like, man, what is going on? <laughs> just being like totally overwhelmed by everything going on around you. So yeah, I mean, difficult experience, but overall really good. Yeah. I mean, was this, it wasn't always the plan, right? In a lot of ways, like COVID uh, and what we're going through the pandemic has kind of allowed you to take this opportunity to learn, right? From your, from your cooks and your chefs that are at, at your family restaurant in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, originally the plan was to kind of like hit the ground running with the fundraising and like cooking these like R&D dinners. And, you know, I had always was, you know, all the time I was at Love Madison Park, I was, you know, really just thinking about what I wanted to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, which was to my detriment sometimes, but, you know, the moment I got a chance to, I was, you know, trying to cook this food that eventually I would serve my own restaurant. It's like, A, really and B, it's like hard to kind of like uh, negotiate the relationship between this Western fine dining training and this, these kind of flavors you grew up with and trying to champion the cause of Chinese food. So uh, that was originally planned to doing this R&D, cooking this kind of fancy food very much in an EMP aesthetic and style. And then, you know, COVID happens and then you're like, okay, you know, time to cook dumplings. Um, time, to, time to make dumplings, time to make sesame chicken, time to make, you know, spirits, all this stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was not the original plan, but I actually think it's better that way. Cause yeah, I mean, I think obviously I'm very thankful and grateful for my experience at Elements and Park. Like it just made me such a better chef in so many ways, but there's a certain kind of, you know, dogma and philosophy to cooking there that you have to really embrace. And it kind of infiltrates how you think about everything about food, you know, the way you approach it, the way you think about it, the way you think it should look, the way you think it should taste. And, you know, I think we have to try to remember is like, there are really no hard set rules. And that's not saying that, you know, the food at EMP is bad. Obviously it's incredible, but uh, that you can break out of your own box and you should challenge everything that you kind of learned and the, you know, presupposed rules that you have to cooking, quote unquote rules. Uh, so, you know, going back to like cooking ribs and, you know, just like stir frying vegetables and this kind of thing. Like, you know, what's wrong with that? You know I mean? That stuff is great. It's delicious, right? If the end goal of a chef is just to create delicious food to nurture people, then, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, these things like serve that purpose, right? Like I, I never envisioned myself serving dumplings, you know, because I, I didn't know how to make them. <laughs> you know, it just seemed like so obviously associated with Chinese food. Like how much could we really improve on it? Uh, but, you know, why not? Like it's, it's a really efficient use of, protein, you know what I mean? And it's delicious. And I'm sure if you put your mind to it, there's ways to approach it from a new direction and a new philosophy, right? So I think it was a good like kind of step back after doing fine dining for so long to be like, hey, uh, being a chef is about making good, making people happy, nurturing people. Like that should always be the number one focus. And that there are, there's like many routes to that end goal. So yeah, I mean, that, that, that was really helpful. So I think that's kind of been the theme of my cooking philosophy and how it's morphed over the time of COVID and just kind of taking over this, you know, uh, kind of fundamental Chinese American cuisine, so to speak. Yeah. 
the the other thing that I saw in your um, pitch deck that really resonated with me and I wanted to talk about was you obviously we shared your mission, right? What you want to do with the restaurant, but there, there was also a very tangible goal, which was to get a mission star within a year of opening. Right. And it's pretty, I mean, I don't know if incredible is the right choice of words, but it's kind of crazy how like it, in the deck, you said there's 68 mission star restaurants in New York city. Right. And to my knowledge, I believe cafe China was on, was the sole mission star restaurant for quite a bit. They've been, they've been on that list for probably since the inception, if not maybe a year or two after Michelin came to New York, but um, they got, they, they, they lost it, you know, recently, very recently. So they're now effectively zero Chinese restaurants with a star in New York yeah. City. I mean that even when I was writing the pitch deck, you know, I was looking through the list of, I was expecting to find Cafe China and I was just like, Oh shit, they're not, they're not here anymore. <laughs> uh, even I was like kind of surprised by it. Cause that was the one that was always in my mind. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty crazy. Right. And like, you know, obviously the Michelin guide has its own, like, you know, it's not the end all be all of accolades, but I mean, there, there are some merits to it for sure. And, uh, you know, as chefs, we, we certainly kind of obsess over them a lot. Um, but I, I, yeah, it's definitely a goal of mine to be on there, right? Because now there's like so many Korean restaurants on there. Adam makes just like absolutely crushing it. You guys, <laughs> two stars, like that's, that's amazing. And, uh, not to make it like the only worthwhile goal of what I try to do. Like, you know, if it doesn't get a star, it's not like the end of the world. But I do think it would be a powerful statement in terms of the perception of Chinese cuisine in the Western world, right? Because there's just so few of these restaurants in the guide. You know, there's like some big gourmand and Michelin plate, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like the current ambassador for Chinese cuisine in the Western zeitgeist is, you know, Mission Chinese, which is its own certain sort of brand. It's like kind of like this grungy kind of like, uh, you know, I think what was the adjective I saw, raucous kind of cooking that is, you know, uh, really focusing on this intense Sichuan kind of flavor profile and yeah, like kind of turning it up to the max um, to, to, to garner interest in that way. But yeah, I mean, it's just not something that exists. And it's again, kind of like what we're talking about is so just no Chinese American chef. Um, and there's not a lot of people who want to do it. So I think it would be a powerful statement to be able to, you know, take all this training from fine dining and to put it into a cuisine that I think is very deserving of it. Like I'm very cautious around the terms elevate and refine. I think those are kind of loaded in a lot of ways. It's kind of suggests that this cuisine is undeserving or it was in a place that needed to be elevated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it's almost like it has this like white savior complex to it. Like, Oh, we need to, we need to elevate this cuisine. Like, I don't, like, I don't think, I, I think those words we need to be very careful using, but to me, like fine dining and what the Michelin guide recognizes is attention to detail and uh, labor in a lot of ways. Like how much attention to detail, how much labor are you of love are you putting into this restaurant? Because that's that, that's all it really is. Like from the one mission star level to the three mission star level, it's just as you climb that ladder, it's just about hyper focus on these like crazy minutiae and details, right? I mean, we both know that from working at Love Massive Park. Just like looking back on it, some of the things we obsessed about, the details we obsessed about, it's just like crazy when normal conversation, you know, like yeah, you sound you sound like a crazy person when you tell normal people that like you know we used to peel blueberries or that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what it is. And, you know, like, and I do believe in, you know, this kind of signal of quality 
in the more details you put into something. So I think, you know, having been trained in that environment and having that be the foundation of so much of my cooking is, is this attention to detail, this, this uh, putting love and passion into your food. I think someone needs to do that for Chinese cuisine. And I think using the Michelin guide to bring attention to that is worthwhile and would, would uh, get some attention in the right ways. I feel like. Talk to me about the name, the, how you, how you ended up with the name. Does it, does it mean anything? And uh, I know you're really keen on like the lower East side too, right? So why the lower East side? Like, Give me the, the rundown. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so uh, to be perfectly honest with you, Anju, A-N-Z-H-U, it, it's just supposed to be cute sounding nonsense. <laughs> I, I will tell you this, like I've wanted, like since the day I put on a chef's coat, I've wanted to open my own restaurant. And since that first day in 2008, I was thinking, what to name this stupid restaurant? And for tw- did not come up with a name. <laughs> and so it's really hard. And so finally, you know, when I came on something that just kind of clicked and felt good, I was like, oh, all right. Like, it sounds cool. Like, it fits me. I don't know. I can't really describe it yet, but it feels right. So that's what I went with. But it does have some degree of meaning. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't, it's not tied to any specific characters. I, that was not the point. But, you know, Jew is, um, it's, uh, it means pig in Chinese. It means pearl in Chinese. An, it means, you know, peaceful in Chinese. And, you know, all those things are kind of like important to me in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously Pearl uh, was the name of my family restaurant that I grew up in. Um, So that was kind of significant to me in a lot of ways. And obviously cooking with, uh, with pork is, is, is super important to me. You know, I don't really, I think it's, you know, pretty unethical to cook beef at this point. Uh, (laughs) And I think we need to kind of revisit that in total as chefs, but yeah, I mean, you know, pork has pretty bad rep and, Western uh, culture a lot. And it's like so important to Asian cultures, right? Like just like the foundation of like of the cuisine in so many ways. So uh, yeah, it was just kind of like cute, playful words playing around that and it sounded good. Uh, I don't know if that's a very satisfying answer, but it's the truth. <laughs> and just kind of uh, owning up that it doesn't really mean anything super significant. But uh, yeah, you know, Lower East Side, I just, there's always been like a kind of grunge to it that I love. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, say I grew up in New York City, but I did go to school here and um, I spent a lot of my teenage years here. So I do feel like a lot of attachment and I have seen the city change a lot, you know, especially 9-11 and the recession and everything. Like I I feel a lot of attachment to the city and the Lower East Side, well, a lot of people kind of associate it with like pianos and like NYU students, as you know, (laughs) and like these like really crappy bars where there's like these drunk ass, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do think there's like a sort of grunge and a spirit to it that I really connect with, right? It's like there is a culture of like, this is where the misfits are welcome. And I, I, I really embrace that a lot. I feel like, yeah, it's like my whole life had been a misfit in a lot of ways. I mean, I grew up in a, you know, primarily went to a primarily white school and it was like a very different, difficult experience being Asian American in New York and, um, you know, even just like in the nineties and early two thousands, I mean, every Asian American kid has like a different experience, but to me it was, it was difficult and it was a lot of adversity to face. And so, yeah, I mean, I felt like a misfit, someone who's just kind of on the margins a little bit, someone who's just kind of uh, a little bit forgotten about these, they all end up on the lower East side somehow. And that's, I feel like that's where we all kind of find home. And I just couldn't picture myself being like an uptown restaurant where you're like, you know, kind of the extension of all these like one percenters like homes and 
you know, midtown restaurants are like so expensive and they have this kind of, uh, I mean, yeah, like 11 Madison park. I mean, it's just like these like fine dining giants and I didn't really feel, it didn't feel right there either. So yeah, it, it felt right to be close to Chinatown to be, you know, in this environment where you could kind of like scratch out a little bit of a, a little bit of a place for yourself. Yeah. I, I was actually just got, I was just going to comment on that too. It's just like the proximity of Chinatown to Lower East Side, obviously. And then uh, obviously like Contra and Wild there, you know, they really, they made a mark as well for, for that neighborhood that, you know, you could do, you could do that kind of cooking, you know, in that neighborhood and, and, and still be a neighborhood favorite. You know, they're still very loved to this day. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were huge inspirations in a lot of ways, you know, they brought so much attention to the, you know, I'm really glad they finally got their star and, um, yeah, I mean, they made it like a serious dining location. And even though it does have this kind of like grungy, dirty atmosphere, it doesn't mean you can't find this like incredible restaurant that's, you know, kind of quote unquote hiding there. And I think they do a great job. And, um, you know, they're definitely like huge inspirations for wanting to be down there. Um, so yeah. And, you know, as I was saying, the, the rent is a lot more manageable. So <laughs> that's also a bonus. How's the rent these days? I mean, do you see a huge fluctuation, man? Like in, in terms of like, are people actually cutting and slashing? Like the asking, is it, is it pretty negotiable right now? Do you think like, how's the market with COVID and everything? Literally reading like a CNBC article about how um, like Fifth Avenue is experiencing like huge rent slashes because none of the like fancy luxury retail shops are open. Uh, I don't think that's totally reflected in restaurants just yet. And most experts I've spoken to who are in the industry, they don't think the price drops will really reflect in for like another eight to 10 months. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I, it's hard to say exactly because the situation changes every single day, but I remain optimistic that rents will go down. Right. I mean, unfortunately so many restaurants are just not going to survive the year. It's just like facts at this point. I mean, like, you know, everyone, yeah, everyone in New York city just depends on this like awesome fall business and it's just not going to be there, not for anyone. And so it's sad, but a ton of places will go under, uh, you know, and that will eventually force the market to stabilize in some degree. Right. I mean, I think it will, who knows, maybe it won't, but you know, overall, I think it's a good thing. I think it was a bubble. I think, the way we were running restaurants, the way rents were in New York city, it was totally unsustainable. And so this is a chance for us to hard reset if we do it the right way. And, you know, kind of people, people do the right thing and, and treat each other well and are invested in each other's success. Right. Like I think now more than ever, the relationship you have with your landlord, you know, the place you choose to set up shop is, it's just so important now. Right. Like you just, you can't survive without having a symbiotic relationship. You got to figure out how to make it work for the both of you. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to see. I mean, I don't know which areas are going to be most hard hit. I, I don't know. Uh, I, obviously, I can't tell what's really going to happen. I'm no real estate expert by any means, but it's hard to imagine that rents wouldn't come down. And I think there's an opportunity here for uh, people like me. I think the cost of entry to own your own restaurant in New York is, is going to go down dramatically. You can inherit a restaurant overnight that has almost everything you need. You just need to give it a facelift, uh, which is not something, you know, was easily done before. I mean, the amount of millions you needed to raise to open a restaurant in New York was crazy. 
So, I mean, it's still expensive. Don't get me wrong, but I think, uh, you know, now there's going to be some interesting opportunities. There's going to be chefs who are going to find opportunities that, that weren't, that weren't there before. And I think overall, not to celebrate the destructiveness of everything happening, but there will be some good that comes out of this. I think the dining culture will have an opportunity to get much more interesting and to start with these small owned businesses. You know, New York was just getting snatched up by giant corporate chains all over the place that could, you know, afford to take losses on stuff. So I don't know yet. I mean, I'm, I'm keeping as close tabs as I can on it. And hopefully, you know, exactly that scenario kind of works out for me that uh, I can find a restaurant space that is pretty much ready to go and just kind of give it a facelift and start, start rocking. That is the dream. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully that's the case. On a more positive and fun note, I would love if, if, if you'd like, and I, and I would love for you to, um, there's some dishes that you put on the deck that were like, uh, you know, some early examples of what, what your restaurant would look like. Uh, I would love for you to share some, if, if you have anything finalized or if that you want to share, cause I saw one in particular, black truffle chow fun. I, I wish I like understood my own creative process a little better because I just like, I don't know. I just do it live every single time, which is probably irresponsible, but that one, that one seemed to be pretty successful. I was pretty, uh, happy with it, but, um, you know, I made like a long, long Instagram post about it, but yeah, I mean, chow fun, right? Like, I mean, like truffle pasta is like the original introduction and still like the, the main like vehicle for truffles and how people appreciate it in New York city. Right. Um, and you know, chow fun is pasta. And so that's kind of like where the idea kind of came from is like, you know, this noodle dish that you bring to the, uh, table i'm sorry usually it's pasta dish uh <laughs> and then you cook it at the table and like you know you show all the guests the truffle and you shave it over make 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 it rain truffle uh so that's kind of where the idea came from obviously i was just like seeing chow phone hanging around all the day. I'm like, like it didn't take long to just kind of connect the dots and so yeah i mean the dish is like you know this huge blob of truffle puree, which is very much a Madison Park recipe, <laughs> but it's delicious. Um, and, you know, braised chicken and a star anise and uh, pickled mushrooms, that kind of stuff. And, you know, just kind of sandwiched between two really soft layers of rice noodles. And, uh, you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I've never eaten one myself, like the whole thing. <laughs> I, but I'm told by people who've eaten it that it's really good. Uh, so I'll, well, I'll see if we can keep that in the wheelhouse. But I mean, obviously the process for figuring out the kind of food I'm going to be doing and, um, you know, how exactly I want to showcase Chinese American cuisine in the right way is still very much a work in progress and probably always will be. And is this balance between cooking assertively and defensively, right? Like I think, um, cooking defensively is kind of shying away from certain things because you want to make it more accessible to people, which maybe is necessary in some instances, right? Like, I don't know if uh, the average American diner is ready for, what, what is that uh, cream? Like the raw fermented uh, blue crabs. And so it's like... Kanjang gejang, yeah. Yeah, like Korean people love that shit. Yeah, yeah, right? it's raw, yeah. But yeah, that yeah. is like really like expert level Korean <laughs> like eating for the average American. So I think it's this fine balance of like making things accessible, but really like exploring the better parts and the more the stories in your cuisine that are untold. Um, so I'm still figuring out that process and how to cook. Like, uh, you know, I've been making this dish that's with Seltus, which is still the most people are not familiar with. 
uh, and just kind of cutting into batons and glazing in a butter. And, you know, that's how you'd cook any vegetable in a French restaurant, you know, glazing with chicken stock and butter and then, you know, voila, delicious. But then I just put like a ton of like exo sauce on it. I mean, I'm again, I'm told it's pretty good, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. The creative process so far has just been kind of this mashup of figuring out how to cook in different ways and things I've learned and obviously flavors I love and, Hopefully I can do it in a responsible way that is going to be delicious and well accepted and steering away from words like fusion and elevation as much as I can, you know, trying to remain optimistic. Um, hope everyone keeps trucking along, keeping the fight alive. So I think in the meanwhile, while I'm trying to fundraise for Anju, I'm going to be doing uh, a little, little ghost kitchen idea, which I think a lot of people have been talking about. Um, you know, kind of going into this closed, empty restaurant space, cooking food and getting it delivered or either for takeout for people and just kind of start building your own brand. So I think that's something I'm going to try to start working on. I have an empty restaurant that, you know, my family used to run. It's actually the original restaurant. My mother took over in, 19, in the 80s called Peking House. It's like way out in Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> and uh, it's empty right now. So like, why not? Like, I, we're just going to figure it out. Maybe I'll fry some chicken. Maybe I'll, you know, do some kind of like pork dinner. I don't know, but just get cooking and we'll see what happens. Just got to keep surviving. Yeah, man. No, I'm excited. And uh, actually there was like a hot minute when I lived in Jamaica, Queens. So I, I, Why? <laughs> oh, it's a, it's, it's a oh, dude. It's just one of those stories, man. It was, I mean, we all, have, we've all had our like uh, low points in this industry and that was just the low point. Of my life. <laughs> oh, my God. Where were you working at the time? I was working at uh boule. And, uh, I was just, you know, not getting paid very well. Uh, I, I, def I definitely got low balled cause I was like super, I was super young. I was like, I was getting paid like 40 K, but then at that point in time, right. I'm like, I'm 20 years old. So I'm like, Oh, four zeros, like $40,000. Like, Oh my gosh, not understanding, uh, you know, <laughs> tax and, and everything yeah. else. And then, uh, I mean, I was living in like poverty and, and still a manager, you know? And, uh, and I thought it was worth it. But anyways, at the time I was living in Jamaica cause I, I just couldn't afford anything else. Uh, everyone, everyone has that New York city story. It builds character. You need it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I was living in like sheep's head Bay and working like 16 hours a day. Like <laughs> shit like that. You know, that's true. That's true. We all, we all have that. So, but either way, I'm excited. I think this is going to be a good, like first step for you. Um, uh, hopefully your delivery zone is like, you know, in, into uh, Long Island city, hopefully maybe. <laughs> it's kind of far. It will be for sure. I mean, uh, I, I don't really know how to figure out delivery logistics just yet. So I think it'll be me cooking, packing, and personally delivering all these meals. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. Hopefully soon I'll give you a call. But hey, you want some chicken? I'll drive over. Like, <laughs> So we'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good first step. Just keep cooking. Keep figuring it out. Just keep trying to survive. That's all it is, man. Just wanted to thank Eric for for being on the show and taking the time. And um, you know, in in a lot of ways, right now the restaurant industry is very precarious and very uncertain in a lot of ways, right? So, two days ago on Monday, uh, Uncle Boone's announced that they'd be closing that location. Um, Uncle Boone's Sisters and Thai Diner, which they opened in February, is, is still open here in New York City, but Uncle Boone's is closed and they've been around for seven years. And, you know, I think they're one of the few 
consistent hot restaurants, right? It's always a wait. There's always um, it's always full, and the fact that they couldn't come into agreement with the landlord because I'm assuming that the landlord, you know, was was not as understanding and greedy, and who knows, right? Maybe he has his own agenda, but it's it's really just the beginning, honestly, and. Um, even before Uncle Boone's, there was a lot of restaurants that have permanently closed. I think Uncle, Uncle Boone's is one of the more high-profile restaurants and is definitely resonating with a lot of people right now. But again, like that's it's not the first and it's definitely not going to be the last, right? Um, but I think it was just especially inspiring. It was especially refreshing to still hear of another young chef and his aspiration and his dreams and the fact that he still wants to carry this out, you know, in this in this time. And I think that, again, he has every absolute right reason to, for doing what he wants to do. Um, and so I just wanted to encourage you um, to follow Eric, Eric and his journey. And I think and he's going to be opening and starting his ghost kitchen operation soon. So if there's any way you can support and follow him, I think it'd be really amazing. Um, so he on Instagram, it's eric.p.huang spelled H-U-A-N-G, his last name, uh, and, and follow him there. He has some really great insightful posts from time to time as well about, um, you know, Chinese cuisine, his take on it. and. and, and I've always enjoyed his kind of commentary there too. So um, again, thanks for tuning in today. This was Arnold and Eric with Warm Welcome, and we'll see you next week.